If you have your Bibles, please open with me to Genesis 42. We are in the first book of the Bible, 42nd chapter. As always, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black pew Bibles provided for you there, where you, you will find our passage on page 35. Page 35, our sermon text today, Genesis 42, the guilty brothers and the sovereign God. When was the last time you felt guilty? That pang of conscience you might describe as a tightening of the chest or a weight on your mind? Speaking from experience, sometimes it's over something trivial. I really did have time to break for that yellow light. Sometimes it's over something unclear. Should I have helped that homeless person? Sometimes that feeling of guilt is exactly right. I should not have said that to her. This week I googled, what should I do with guilt? And the first result had had some helpful things to say. It can be a positive emotion, it reminded me, helping me to learn from my mistakes. It pointed out that sometimes guilt is misplaced. The article had, had 10 tips to stop feeling guilty. For example, to make amends by apologizing for the behavior causing guilt. But, but sadly, this article was completely horizontal. By, by that, I mean it only dealt with my relationship with myself and with others. There was no vertical component of guilt. That is, what does guilt tell us about the existence of and my relationship with a moral and personal God that created me. Your conscience, especially your guilt, is a unique gift from God, a witness that you were made by Him and for Him to be like Him, but are not. Our passage today, Genesis 42, is a, a small and personal picture of how God uses guilt and a guilty conscience to speak to us. In this last part of Genesis, we've been studying Moses' account of the sons of Jacob. And it's been a, a tragic story. It's the story of, of hate, jealousy, attempted murder, deception, slavery, imprisonment, sexual immorality, famine, and theft, and, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of evil. But finally, in our study last week, we emerged from the dark tunnel and came upon the, the stunning vista before us. Joseph, who has suffered evil at that point for 13 years, who has remained steadfast in hope and obedience, is now elevated to the right hand of Pharaoh, saving countless lives through the wisdom God has given him. All the nations surrounding Egypt are, are pouring in to buy grain from Joseph to be saved 
from the foretold famine. But the story is far from over. We've had four chapters of Joseph's descent and exaltation. Now we begin this morning four chapters of his reconciliation with his brothers that, that meant to murder him but only sold him into slavery. And even though in our chapter this morning, God is not the subject of any verbs, he is here and he is acting. We see him not only in his acts of providence and through the plans of men, but we see him act through the consciences of, of these guilty brothers. He is at work bringing recognition of wrong, the first step in repentance and reconciliation. Guilt can be a gift from God, his work and our conscience to bring the blessings of life. So when, when we know guilt, it might be his work, a gift you cannot ignore, a gift given to bring blessing and life. So with that in mind, we are going to read the entire chapter. And when done, then pray for God's help to understand, believe, and apply his word to our lives. So read with me Genesis 42, starting in verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. 
If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your, fa- famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this, their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, what is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies, but honest men. And I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in their sack. And when they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob said to them, you have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left." If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray heads, my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Amen. Thus ends our reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Pray with me that God would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Please pray. Our Father, what, what a story of your great mercy. Father, even if your, your actions are hidden behind providence, we see your invisible hand. Father, we pray this morning as we read this story that, that its story would become our story of your good action, bringing distress to the guilty to lead us to life. Father, we pray that this morning you would write these eternal truths on our hearts. 
Lord, that we would see your good providence in our lives. Lord, that when you bring guilt upon our conscience, we would turn from it to find life in your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray this. Amen. Well, what is our sermon in a sentence this morning, our main idea? It might be this. Our sovereign God brings distress on the guilty to lead us to life. Our sovereign God brings distress on the guilty to lead us to life. In our story in Genesis, the national drama of Pharaoh and famine fades from view, and the story here turns personal. The sons of Jacob that had plotted murder and sold Joseph into slavery now return to the story. If, If you've been keeping track, it's been 20 years now since we've last seen them. The chapter makes clear that they have have not dealt with the decades-old misdeeds. Honestly, I have read this story in my life countless times, but I don't think I, I really understood most of what was going on until this week. I am amazed at how many layers this story has. So hopefully this morning we can peel some of them back and see that, that our sovereign God brings distress on the guilty to lead us to life. We'll have four points this morning in our outline. Four points. First, content in Canaan in the first five verses. Second, earnest in Egypt, then verses 6 through 17. Third, distressed in dungeons in 18 through 28. And finally, bereaved with Benjamin. That in 29 through 36. Content in Canaan, earnest in Egypt, distressed in dungeons, and finally bereaved with Benjamin. So let's start with our first point, content in Canaan, in the first five verses. By content, I don't mean to say Jacob with his sons are happy. I just mean that in Canaan, after 20 years, it is still the status quo. What we find in these first five verses is that things are still a lot like when we last left them in Genesis 37, when we were last with Jacob and all of his sons together. Do you remember how this story began? The father Jacob's preferential and protective treatment of his favorite son, their Joseph. Joseph was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph got the conspicuous display of his favored position, a a multicolored coat. It's the reason, you recall, why all his brothers hated him. Jacob's favoritism bearing nasty fruit with his wives way back in Genesis 30 and with his sons in Genesis 37. And what do we find now 20 years later in Genesis 42? Well, well, first, famine, famine has, has reached the land of Canaan there in verse 5. In the last verse of chapter 41, we learn that all the earth was coming to Egypt to buy grain. So here in the first verse of 42, the camera pans some 250 miles out of Egypt, zooming in on one family, all sitting around staring at one another. They have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. And what does Jacob do? 
Well, he again sends the, the mass of his sons to a dangerous task. Back in Genesis 37, it was the 11 with his flocks near Shechem, Shechem being a city that had a vendetta against Jacob's sons. Well, now in 42, he sends the 10 on the long trek down into Egypt to buy grain, a trip that, that even Jacob here admits has potential for harm. I do want to point out, based on the count in verse 3, so 10 of the brothers, that Judah, who had been apart from his brothers for many years, is apparently back in Canaan with his brothers. But who does Jacob not send? Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother. Jacob is still playing favorites with the sons of Rachel. Rachel had two sons. In fact, she died when giving birth to this second son, Benjamin, back in Genesis 35. Benjamin might not get a a cool coat like Joseph, but Jacob keeps him back from harm in, in fear. He's learned his lesson from when he sent Joseph back in 37. This, I think we can say, is due to a lack of guilt. Jacob should have, time and time again, felt the pangs of his conscience directing him to stop his wicked partiality with his wives and with his children. Or maybe he's felt guilt, but has shifted the blame, never taking responsibility for his part and changing his behavior. Look back at verse 4. What is controlling Jacob is fear. He feared that harm might happen to him, to Benjamin. He has reason to fear. He's already lost one of his sons. Church, like Jacob, so many of our fears and anxieties are valid rooted in in real danger. But when they control us, they become the narratives that orient our lives, and we're failing to live by faith. Uh, A pastor, Jim Hamilton, observed that, that Jacob here has lost the plot. Why is it that, that in your favorite action movie... You never have a scene where the hero sits down to eat a meal. You know they have to eat. Well, normally it's because it has nothing to do with the plot. Jacob here has has lost the plot. Jacob can't see what the true hero of the story, God, is up to. Jacob is in the line of promise. The snake-crushing seed of Eve is going to come from his sons. Do you remember? Genesis 3.15, way back at the beginning, after the fall, God spelled doom for Satan, the great instigator and an enemy of God's people. Genesis 3.15, God says, I will put enmity between you, that is Satan, between, excuse me, you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is this promised seed, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
Well, it seems here in Genesis 42 that Jacob has forgotten all of that. God promised to defeat Satan by a son of Eve, and that line now comes through Jacob. But God promised that victory will mean harm. Satan will bruise his heel. It's, it's been promised. Jacob should know at the core of his being that God will use harm that comes to his sons when they act in faith to undermine and hinder the work of Satan and ultimately to undo it all. That is exactly what we have seen in the story of Joseph in the last four chapters. Harm coming to a son of Jacob, but God achieving his purpose, undermining and hindering the work of Satan. Church, we are constantly living in a narrative, a story about what is happening in our life and why. Jacob here has, has lost the plot. Jacob is living with some other story at the center. Faith in a fallen world, in the face of fear, means that we have to let the Bible, God's Word, shape how we think. At the, the center of the plot, the, the main storyline of the Bible is how God sends the snake crusher. He rescues us from our sins by sending an obedient son to, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserve so that we can have eternal life and glory forever with him. The center of the story of the Bible is the gospel, the life, the death, the resurrection, and the, the current reign of Jesus. All of the Bible is ultimately about Jesus and that plan for the fullness of time. So let me remind you now in December that Bible reading is not just a task on your to-do list. It is God's mean to keep you in the narrative. You and, and I and, and every human being are a part of a, a much bigger story. It is the true story of the Bible from beginning to end. So if it's, if it's been a while, let me encourage you to review that story in 2023 to make a, a plan to read the entire Bible. You can do it in just a few minutes a day. I plan on using the book at a time plan found in, in our member's guide. So if you don't have a plan yet, you're invited to join me. It's, it's just a few chapters a day, 25 days a month. And if you plan to join me, please let me know and we can keep one another accountable. Well, even if Jacob here has lost the plot living by a different narrative, God, by his providential hand, moves his purposes forward. Who do you think brought famine to Canaan? Is Satan sovereign over clouds and rain? Do you remember who sent the torrential rain that brought the flood in Genesis 7? Countless verses tell us that God rules over the clouds. Like Psalm 147, verse 8. He covers the heavens with clouds. He prepares rain for the earth. He 
makes grass grow on the hills. So by God's plan, by famine, Jacob here sends his sons to Egypt to find grain and write to their brother, Joseph. Our second point in verses 6 through 17, earnest in Egypt. Our second point, earnest in Egypt. Here is more evidence of God's providence of God's directing and governing of all events toward his appointed ends. In all the droves of all the people coming into Egypt, in all the various cities where Joseph had grain kept, it just so happens in verse 6 that Joseph's brothers come to him. Sure, it could have been that Joseph was expecting his brothers to come, but still he could not guarantee it would happen. Only God can. And here they bow down to him in verse 6. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but but according to verse 8, they do not recognize him. And this is understandable. It's been 20 years. He's wearing Egyptian garb without the beard typical to, to Canaan. You know, I might expect here in this scene for Joseph to finally have his, his revenge, a dish best served cold. Maybe he'll do to all of them what they wanted to do to him, have them killed. Or maybe his revenge will be more subtle. Well, now this is where the narrative gets silent We don't get any direct comment from from Moses, our author, about what motivates Joseph. And and maybe we can't be sure, but but I think there are clues. First, in in verse 9, seeing his brothers bow down to him, he remembers the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Way back in in Genesis 37, of his 11 brothers, in in the second dream, his father and mother bowing down to him. Jacob has, or sorry, Joseph has not lost the plot. Now, he might not have spent the last 20 years reading the the book at a time plan, but he does have some of God's revelation, God's word to him in, in dreams, and he has kept God's revelation at the center of his narrative. When he dreamed those dreams, he had no idea how they would be fulfilled, but now Right before him, it is happening. So why doesn't he jump up and down and immediately reveal himself to his brothers? It's me. I think it would be easy to assume that Joseph here is vindictive. He treats them like strangers, roughly it says. I think, though, we should be more generous to Joseph, especially based on his character proved in the last four chapters. I think we should understand that what Joseph is doing here, and really all the way through 45, is a godly test. It's the word he uses in verse 15 of what he's doing. He's going to test them to prove their character. And I hope to, to prove that as we go. First of all, his dream, you remember, included 11 brothers and at least his father too. But here, before him, are only 10. 
Had they hated and killed his brother, the other son of Rachel, just like they had him? What explains his brother's absence? Now, he could just come out and ask them. But last he knew of his brothers, they were a wicked and deceptive people. After they had attacked him and thrown him alive into the pit, he heard them discuss their plans that they had been planning to kill and conceal. He knows that they are liars. So Joseph is interested in the truth, but he needs to put them in a position to prove the truth. He cannot take them at their word. So I don't think Joseph's plan here is revenge. His wise plan is to discover the truth and maybe through it reconcile with his brothers. Are they trustworthy? Have they changed? So he devises a plan that is nearly exactly the same scenario as had happened to him. One brother abandoned to Egypt, enriched in the deal, to see if they have changed. He doesn't put anyone in any real danger. No lives were harmed. No, but he is going to test them. And his test starts in verse 9 with the accusation, you are spies. He puts them on their, their back foot, get them to offer some defense of themselves. They obviously earnestly deny it. They call themselves their, their honest in verse 11. But Joseph wants more, so he insists on it a second time. And these brothers think they are in, in great danger if they cannot prove their innocence. So here in, in verse 13, they offer a version of the truth. They are 12 sons of one man. The youngest is... We know with their father, but they stop short of the full truth. There at the end of verse 13, one is no more. Quite a vague statement. Of course, it's rich in irony. Without knowing it, they're speaking to that one that is no more. But they couldn't really admit to what they had done to him, could they? Right? That wouldn't help their case. I mean, it's not admitting that they're spies, but, but certainly it would prove that they are not honest men. Murdering or attempting to murder their brother, then selling him off into slavery. Well, Joseph refuses to believe what they say about Benjamin. He needs to know for certain. He can't take them at their word. So in verses 15 through 17, he tells us the test, he calls it. By this you will be tested. All but one will remain in prison, while the last will go and fetch the brother and bring him back to prove their story. And in verse 17, for now, to really put the heat on them, he's going to put all ten in the slammer. Let them sweat it out. Can we just observe here, saints, that sin hides its price tag? These brothers thought that by getting rid of Joseph those 20 years ago, that their problems would all be gone. But look at it. Jacob, their father, is still playing favorites. Getting rid of one favorite 
isn't going to make life better for them. And now their deception is coming back to bite them. They're going to have to deal with it and, and pay the price of their sin. Sin had offered them what they wanted by murdering or just selling their hated brother to get rid of him. But sin promises what it cannot deliver. It always turns to dust in the hand. God is sovereign, not sin. Only what God promises is absolute and certain. And it is actually God's mercy that we have to reckon with the fallout of our sins. It is what teaches us that there are consequences for our sins and not just in this life. Our sin is a matter of life and eternal death. And that's what we will see in our third point, distressed in dungeons, starting in verses 18 through 28. Distressed in dungeons, 18 through 28. Well, in verse 18, having put the heat on his brothers, Joseph comes back with a change in plans. And it's a, a merciful change. Instead of nine staying and one going, nine will go with one to stay. This allows much more grain to go back with the brothers, to go home to their households, to their wives and, and children back home. And Joseph says here that he does this because he, he fears God at the end of verse 18. Of course, we know he is speaking through an interpreter. He's not revealed yet that he speaks Hebrew. He doesn't, therefore, use the name Yahweh. They don't know what God he is referring to. But it is a subtle challenge to these brothers. Do you also fear God to do what is right? But still, in order to get their last remaining brother back, they must bring Benjamin back to Egypt. So the, the plan is coming together. One of their brothers left in bondage in Egypt like Joseph, how will they respond? Well, in verse 21, we have the first hints of how this arrangement is hitting them. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Well, for all their claims of being honest men, they finally speak the truth here in verse 21. In truth, they are guilty. Their consciences all together are reminding them of their evil deed from 20 years before. They see the, the correspondence as I think Joseph designed it. Just as Joseph was in distress and they did not listen, so now the same distress is coming on them. Though not yet, they don't talk about God. It's just a passive. This distress has come upon us from nowhere and no one in particular. Well, Reuben jumps in with a told you so in verse 22. He is the one who had, had suggested back in chapter 37 not to murder Joseph only throw him in a pit. His plan was come back to rescue him later. But in particular, you see that 
that Reuben uses that word reckoning. So there comes a reckoning for his blood. It's the same word that, that God himself used in, in Genesis 9-5 when he told Noah that God himself will require a reckoning, an accounting, a punishing even for the life of a man. God will not be mocked. What you sow, you will reap. This is what we read earlier in Galatians 6. Though Paul there is not talking about murder, it is certainly a universal principle. God has created a world. He upholds and, and governs a world where our actions have serious and long-term consequences. We reap what we sow. And it is in God's mercy to point that out to your conscience without a word, even through distress. This week I was reminded of a way God did this to me, to, to show my conscience the guilt of what I had done years earlier before I had become a Christian. I, I once found a, a handheld gaming console in the drawer of a hotel room I was staying in. I, I'm sure that it had been left there by a previous occupant, missed by the cleaning crew. But instead of doing what I should, turning it into the front desk for them to, to notify the owner, I hid it from my parents and kept it. In other words, I stole what did not belong to me. Well, in time, I decided that I wanted a different brand handheld game console. So I decided to sell what I had stolen. And as a naive teen, I sold it to someone in a foreign country who promised me prompt payment as soon as it was shipped. Well, of course, I was scammed. They stole it from me. And I was very upset. But in God's mercy... I realized that's exactly what I had done to someone else years earlier. The anger I was feeling turned into remorse for what I had done. God, in his mercy, did not leave me content in my sin. He made sure in his providence that I had reaped exactly what I had sown. Now, this was before I was a Christian, I wasn't saved the next day, but, but I see it now as God keeping my conscience so that, that when I did hear the gospel clearly, I had a very clear sense of my own sin. Well, and I think that is exactly what God is doing here for these brothers, giving them an experience of what they had done long ago to Joseph. Reuben says there is a reckoning. Without a word, God is speaking truth to their consciences. Verse 21, in truth, we are guilty. Well, Joseph overhears this conversation. They don't know that he speaks Hebrew. And it, it moves him to tears. They're finally being honest. And he learns that it was Reuben who interceded at the last minute to save his life. But he is going to continue his plan to get at the truth, seeking reconciliation with his 
brothers. So he binds Simeon, it's not clear why him, and sets them on their way with one added detail. He puts the money back in their bags. Just another element to recreate, I think, the events of Genesis 37. They leave. When one of their brothers opens the sack, in verse 27, he sees the money. And here their hearts fail them. Finally, they they think of God. What has God done to us in verse 28? What has God done to us? Already they've been accused of being spies, and this makes matters worse. They had every intention to pay, but now it looks like they're not just spies, but thieves as well. You know, this might just be Joseph being generous to his family, but certainly the way they interpret it is further distress, and now finally attributed to God. In the narrative, God hasn't been the subject of any verb, God doing anything, but they see this as God's providence, His invisible hand. I, though, think Joseph gave the money back to enhance the test. It adds more reason for them not to return, more danger. It's another element from from Genesis 37. They had gotten rich with silver by selling Joseph. Will they keep the money rather than rescue their brother Simeon? Have they changed? And that's the question that we carry into our, our final section, our fourth point, bereaved with Benjamin. Bereaved with Benjamin in verses 29 through 38. Bereaved with Benjamin. Well, in verse 29, finally, they return to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. In these verses, they recount their saga, though they soften the truth here and there. They don't mention their, their three-day imprisonment. They don't mention that, that Simeon is left in the dungeon. And in verse 35, they find that not just one... But every brother has had their money returned to them. Now, if you're Jacob, how might that look to you? You've already lost one son under questionable circumstances. Now you've heard you've lost another. And everyone is coming back with all the money they left with. Well, I think Jacob here is connecting the dots. They traded Simeon for grain. Well, that at least seems to be the accusation in verse 36. You, he says, have bereaved me of my children. Plural. Not the animal that supposedly ate Joseph. Not the governor who supposedly kept Simeon. It's you, nasty kids. Well, at least I still have Benjamin, he thinks. Reuben's suggestion in verse 37 is a a huge flop. I'll take Benjamin, and if he's not safe, kill my sons. Who in the world would trust someone to protect their son who is so quick to offer up their own? Finally, in verse 38, Jacob acts as if Benjamin is his only son. 
My son, he says, will not go down with you. He is the only one left, he says. What about the other nine, Jacob? He is still enslaved by sinful partiality, controlled by fear of what harm might come. In this last section, I think there's, there's one verse or one phrase that is particularly revealing there in verse 36, the last few words. It says, all this, Jacob says, has come against me. All this has come against me. Obviously, it is a statement of fact. This has come against Jacob. But it says a lot about how Jacob is interpreting what's come against him. He sees the circumstances of his life against him. And he does not consider what is for him. A a woe is me mentality. I wish I could just jump into the pages and shake Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. Yes, these things are against you. But don't you remember everything that's been against you your whole life? Your brother Esau, who tried to kill you. Laban, who tried to cheat you. And what did God do in all of that? What, in fact, did God say to you as you fled Esau? Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. What did God say to you as you settled back in Canaan? A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from your body. The land that I swore to give to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Jacob, God is for you. All this comes against you God is for you. He is with you. He keeps you. Whatever threatens your sons, nations will come from them. They will inherit the land. You might not be able to see it, but God is working his promises through this, not harm. Romans 8.31 is ringing in my ears. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? My own sons, the governor of the land of Egypt, nothing if God is for us. By God's grace, we will see Jacob act in faith soon. But our narrative ends here with Jacob in the despair of unbelief. And it leaves us with the question, brothers and sisters. When others mean harm against you, will you trust that God is for you? That God is in the midst of all of it, working it all for you? It is too easy for us to interpret everything that happens against us in our personal lives or in the the society around us and respond with fear. 
to magnify the harm and minimize God's good purposes on the other side. In fact, in this, God's good purpose is not only to provide food for his nation, but to bring reconciliation to these 12 tribes. God will not only preserve their lives, but deal with their guilt. You know, our, our passage started with, with Jacob telling his sons to do this so that they would live. Of course, he's speaking of the death of starvation, that they need to go get grain so they don't die. Well, Joseph repeats the same instruction in verse 18, do this and you will live. Verse 20, you shall not die. I think they are both speaking better than they know. There is in these commands a divine meaning. God has a fuller plan for life. As amazing as Joseph's plan was, as unintentionally providential Jacob's plan was, God's, in the midst of all of it, is far greater. It is actually sin, not famine, that brings death. Sin and you will surely die. By their sin, Adam and Eve were barred from the tree of life, lest they take it and live forever. So in this story, God is not only bringing physical life, but paving the path for them to receive spiritual life. What separates these sons of Jacob from the tree of life is the guilt of their sin. And God is patiently by his providence working to deliver them from their greatest danger, his own just wrath against the guilt of their sin. This story is the part of one big story of how God rescues us from the guilt of our sin through His Son. Our sin makes us guilty before God. If your conscience is telling you today of your guilt, turn to God and receive forgiveness. Even if today you've been reminded of a sin from 20 years ago, it is His mercy to point that out to you. Do not ignore the gift of guilt. Turn away from those sins and trust in Christ's sacrifice. Christ willingly took your guilt upon Himself at the cross. Though he was innocent, he became guilty. It was as if he had done all the things that you had done. And on the cross, he suffered the punishment that we in our guilt deserve. We read earlier that, that God cannot clear the guilty. The only way that he can forgive your sin is for your guilt to be paid for by your guilt being paid for by another. Guilt must be dealt with in the Son of Christ or in your own body. For those who trust in Christ, now when you feel the burden of guilt, you can have a clear conscience, not because you have done no wrong, 
but because the wrongs you have done have been transferred to Christ. And you are forgiven. Your record wiped clean with the blood and righteousness of Jesus. There is, therefore, now no condemnation, no guilt to condemn for those who are in Christ Jesus. Saints, when is the last time you felt guilty? Listen to it. Do not remain content in your sins for another day, comfortable in the status quo. Sin hides its price tag. You will reap what you sow. Be quick to listen to the distress of an uncomfortable conscience. And when it uncovers a true offense against God, go to the only source of relief. God gives the gift of guilt to lead you to eternal life in the spotless Son who was condemned for your guilt. Our sovereign God brings distress on the guilty to lead us to life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we magnify your name for the gift of a guilty conscience. Father, that reveals to us that we will reap what we have sown. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption and in the age to come, eternal death. Father, we pray that by your grace today that we would turn away from the guilt of sin, that we would place the guilt of our sin on the only spotless sacrifice who died to take away our guilt. Father, we pray that we would trust him. Lord, that we would live by that narrative at the center of our lives. Lord, knowing that even the harm that comes against us, even the, the great difficulty you use for our good and your eternal glory through your perfect Son. It's in Christ's name we pray all this. Amen.